you take a look at today is Father's Day, and as you take a look at the, um, uh, the title of our study, The Greatest Blessing a Father Can Give His Children, and that greatest blessing that a father can give his children is, in fact, faith. That is the greatest blessing any father can pass on to his children. Before he can pass on faith to his children, he must possess a faith to pass on. I mean, any, any of us in here would probably not find it hard to agree with the fact that a father is to provide for his children. And fathers definitely should be present. They should provide. They should protect. And they should parent the children that God has entrusted to them. And yet when it comes time for us to think about fatherhood and the responsibility of a father to his children, I wonder if we would agree on this reality that the greatest blessing a father can give his children is his faith. There is not a greater blessing that you can pass on to your children other than your faith in God. But before you can do that, you must possess the right kind of faith. It's not just a faith that is spoken, but it's a faith that is lived out in an exemplary way in which your children will see not only in the public life, in the church, in the community, but in your private life behind closed doors, a faith that is lived out in the reality of the context of one-on-one -on -one relationship with your children. For too often we are very clear in our perception of projecting a sort of faith out in the public, especially in a church, and yet have a completely different faith in the close proximity of our family members in our home. And it's no wonder that many children that are growing up in the church today are seeing a difference between a public faith and a private faith in the home. I had a father who uh, wrote me a, a, an email <laughs> I'm not going to say who it is. And I agree with what he asked. He said, when it comes time for Father's Day, take it easy on us a little bit. It's hard for me to do that because I'm a father. And the standards that we lift up in Scripture are standards that I have to lift up in my own life. It's hard for me to, you know, to beat down moms <laughs> because I'm not a mother. It's hard for me to... To, uh, to lay out somewhat uh, the qualifications of, of, of the big example of what a mother is when, when I'm, I'm not in that role and I don't have that relationship, although there are many passages that we can deal with. And, and while it is probably true, we are more gracious and more kind and more tender toward moms than I probably am toward dads. And the reason for that is because I think the, the, the biggest tragedy we have in the American family today is the absence of fathers, especially fathers who are passing on their faith to their children. It's an epidemic. While fathers are worried about providing for their children and protecting their children and even maybe possibly parenting those children, and while that parenting may require a change of diapers or two, one of the beautiful things about grandparenting is that you hand those things over to your children. What about faith? And does the role and responsibility we have as a father ever stop, even when they leave home and begin their own families? Parenting never stops. And part of the problem I think that most of us fathers have is that when we 
are challenged by stepping up and being the spiritual men of God that we are supposed to be for our families and for our children is that this, there's this incredible guilt that we feel because we, we evaluate ourselves. We look in a, a mirror, so to speak, and, and that mirror reflects all of the imperfections and inadequacies of being a spiritual father being the right kind of spiritual leader for our children and living out the reality of our faith and confines and the privacy of our home because our children see the reality of our faith in those private moments that no one else often sees in the public places. And the reality is that we stumble and fall mostly in the private places rather than in the public places, don't we? We feel inadequate and insufficient and insecure and we know that we're anything but perfect We know the standard should be set high because we are the leaders, the spiritual leaders of not only our marriages, but the spiritual leaders of our families and even our nation. And yet, as we evaluate our appearance reflected through the biblical standard of fatherhood and our responsibility in that fatherhood, we we have a tendency to feel a little bit insecure. And, and, And that's not uncommon. I, too, have always felt a little short of being a perfect dad. I'm the perfect pastor, ha ha ha. That's a joke for those of you who are visiting, but I have never been the perfect parent or the perfect father. My wife will tell you she often said she had four children in her home rather than three. And some of you who know me know me well. I, I, I had such a good time in my childhood growing up, I wanted to relive it through my kids. And so we wrestled and we played ball and we had fun because I wanted my children to have fun, but I also understood the responsibility of living out my faith, not just in the pulpit, but also in the private realm of the home. And while there were times of great success, there were moments of defeat and falling short. But I was always quick to admit my shortcomings and my failures and to ask for forgiveness. Abraham knew well what it meant to fail and to succeed in faith. Up until this point in Genesis 22, he's had some incredible successes, but he's also had some devastating failures. And his faith in Genesis 22 has reached to a point where God wants to take his faith to the next level. He's wanting Abraham to move beyond where he is into a new realm of his understanding of who God is and what God wants to do in and through his life, and especially in passing that faith on to Isaac. Because if you read Hebrews 11, you'll learn that Abraham passed his faith on to Isaac, Isaac passed it on to Jacob, and Jacob passed his faith on to Joseph. It was a generational thing in which father passed his faith to the next father, who passed his faith on to the next son, to the next and on and on and on, which leads us to Jesus. Those men were not perfect, but they were responsible in their role and in their relationship of passing on their faith to the next generation. We as fathers must rise to the challenge, especially in the days in which we live, and exhibit the right kind of faith for our family. And make sure that our children see in us, not just in the public places, but in the private places of the home, a faith that is authentic, a faith that is genuine, and a faith that trusts and believes in God. 
Let's talk about that faith for just a moment. There are several aspects that I want us to see in this faith. And beginning with verse 1, we see, first of all, Abraham's faith. We see faith's demand. Faith has a demand here, and that demand is a demand for complete and total availability. It means that we give God a blank check and we let him write in the amount, or we give him a blank contract and say, Lord, I've already signed it. You just put there in that contract what you are requesting and requiring of me. It's already been signed and it's already been delivered. You just write it out and I'll do whatever you ask. That's face demand. I'm available to go wherever, to do whatever you lead me to do. In verse 1, we see that after these things, God tested Abraham. Here, God gives us right on set the reason for this request that he gives to Abraham. He wants to test Abraham. He's not testing Abraham because he doesn't know the kind of faith that Abraham has. He's seen Abraham grow in his faith up to this level. He's not testing Abraham so that Abraham can prove to him the kind of faith that he has in God. God already knows the kind of faith that Abraham has in, in himself, in God. He already knows that. Why is God testing Abraham? Because he wants to take Abraham's faith, I believe, to the next level. He wants to prove to Abraham himself how dedicated and how committed he is. Abraham has no clue, he has no idea how great of a faith he has until he reaches this challenge, until he is, is, is accommodating to that which God asks. He, he thinks, okay, I'm, I'm a person of faith, but I don't have a great faith. Or maybe my faith is limited. And after this, the sky's going to be the limit for him because he's going to recognize and realize that he has such a faith in God that whatever God asks, God receives. God wants to prove to Abraham himself the kind of faith that Abraham has in God. Each of the tests that you go through in life is to strengthen and to grow your faith. You don't have to prove anything to God. But it's to take you to the next level, and that's what God is doing here through this test. He's taking Abraham to the next level, and we see that the response, he said, here I am, here I am. I am completely and totally available. Even before God gave the request, even before God laid out the requirements of what he is asking from Abraham, Abraham is saying, here, here I am. I am available to whatever, whenever you want. I'm completely available. There are no limitations. There are no boundaries. There are no restrictions. It's completely yours. And notice, then God reveals the request. You ever written God a blank check? You haven't given him a, a blank contract that's already pre-signed? Here I am, Lord. Whatever you ask, wherever you lead, whatever you want, it's yours. Just ask it. Here I am. And God has the this, this incredible request, he said in verse 2, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Take your only son, the son that you love. God recognizes that Abraham loves his son. What father doesn't love his son? But this father loves his son more than probably anybody else because you see, This son was born, this son Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old. Anybody in here 100? How many of you feel 100 today? How many of you sitting next to somebody that looks 100? (laughs) Mike, do you look 100? Your son raised his hand pretty quick, man. That's what I thought. 100 years old. 
God had made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation. And it was finally until he was 100 years old that God answered his promise. Here's Isaac, the promised golden child. It's going to be the one, the legacy of Abraham that was going to be a nation. That was, be, that was going to be, have countless in the family. And now God is asking for this son. He wants Abraham to offer him on an altar as an offering to take his life in a place that I will tell you. That is a huge demand. That requires a crisis of belief. I'm not sure what God is going to ask of you, but I can say that what God may ask of you from time to time may be a demand that's greater than you can give on your own or a greater price or a greater cost than you had ever imagined or anticipated. But irregardless of what he asks and what he demands, faith will be available to whatever he asks and yield whatever he demands. Secondly, notice faith's direction. There's a direction in Abraham's faith where Abraham is moving in the direction of being obedient to what God is asking. In verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning. Notice his promptness in responding to the request that God gave him early the next morning. I can imagine that was more than likely the longest night that Abraham had spent in many years. Knowing that in the morning he was going to get up and make preparations in order to go and fulfill what God had requested. And early that morning he did not delay, he did not hesitate, he didn't want to pray about it, he didn't need to think about it, he needed to, didn't need to counsel anyone, he didn't want to put it off to make sure God was, was right in asking this or, or to make sure that this is what God was asking. He immediately got up the next morning and made preparations. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac the offering, the sacrifice, his son, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering. He made all necessary preparations in order to go with God in obedience to God. And then notice, and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He begins to progressively move forward in the direction of where God would have him to go. And three days later, verse 12, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Those were three long days. Abraham is a sojourner. He's made many trips, but these were the three longest days of his life, and we have no record of him and God ever having a conversation during these three days. There is three, these three days are three days of silence in which God doesn't come and speak to him. He doesn't comfort him. He doesn't counsel him. He doesn't encourage him. These are three long days in which Abraham and Isaac is moving toward the request that God had made of him, and he is persevering in these three agonizing days, moving in the direction that God would have. You cannot, you cannot live in faith and stay where you are when God tells you to go. If you stay and remain where you are and you don't move in the direction of being obedient and moving toward accomplishing and fulfilling what God has directed you to do, you won't be living in faith. We see face direction. Third, do we see face decision? Face decision is to trust even when you cannot see, even when you don't understand. And this is where faith is, is the object of things, object of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. 
Here's the decision to trust God even when you don't see how the outcome is going to be. You, you know what God is asking and you, you see yourself headed toward that, that, that thick brick wall at 100 miles an hour and you know God is saying, go through it and I'm going to remove it, but you're heading toward it and you're wondering, I don't see it, I don't understand it, but I know it's going to be possible because God said it would. The decision that Abraham made is recorded in verse 5, and then Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. Three days later, they arrive at the place. He looks up and says, hey, guys, I want you to stay here. He commands them to stay because this is a, a moment between father and son and God. There are some moments that are, that are shared, and there are some moments that are best done in private. And I'm convinced the best faith that you can do and exhibiting faith to your children are often done in private. One-on-one -on -one with your child. And Abraham, one-on-one -on -one with Isaac, is moving toward the sacrifice. But notice his conviction in, in the second part of verse 5. I and the boy will go over here and worship, notice, and will come to you. And will come again to you. Even before he leaves, he turns to the two guys and said, we're going to be back. Now, he didn't just say this as a possibility or as I hope this is going to happen. He says it with conviction. We're going to go up there and make the sacrifice, but we are going to come back. He is convinced and he is convicted that God is going to provide a way. Verse 6, notice the compliance. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. He laid the wood on Isaac. Sound like Jesus who carried the wood, the cross, to the Mount Calvary? And many believe that this land of Moriah was somewhere in the proximity of Jerusalem where Abraham offered Isaac to God. And so they went both of them together. So far, this is about Abraham. He's going to quickly turn to Abraham and Isaac, but right now it's all about Abraham. For Abraham is the only one who is aware of what is about to transpire, and he is putting his complete trust in God. Even though he can't see it, even though he doesn't understand how it's going to happen, he knows that God is going to, is going to save the day. I mean, Hebrews 11 says, uh, through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul to that church, that, that possibly Abraham believed that even if he had to sacrifice his son, that God would raise his son from the dead. That's the kind of conviction that he has. Faith is not only a direction, a decision, but it's demonstrated. Notice verse 7. When we learn that faith without works in James is what? Faith without works is what? It's dead. You see, faith is something that is demonstrated. It is something that is exercised. It is something that is lived out practically in a real way. You can't just claim to have faith. You have to put feet to faith. You have to put action to faith, for faith without works is dead. And Abraham is putting his faith to action, and he's demonstrating this faith to Isaac. Notice in verse 7, and Isaac says to his father Abraham, my father. And Abraham said to him, here I am, my son. Father and son are going up to the sacrifice. <laughs> and Isaac suddenly realizes there's no sacrifice. He's completely unaware of what's going on. 
And he turns to his father and he says, did you notice? My father. He addresses Abraham as my father. Why would he do that? Because he is acknowledging that Abraham is his Abba father, his dad. And Abraham is is hearing his son saying, Dad, I trust you. I have this, this trusting, intimate love relationship with you. You are my father. You care about me. You love me. And because of that, I trust you. We're going up to the mountain. We don't have a sacrifice, but you are my father. You care for me. You love me. You provided for me. You've been teaching me. So you're my daddy. You're my father. And Abraham says, I heard you, son. You're my son. He addresses now Isaac as his son, a father calling Isaac his son. Why would he do that? I love you, son. You're my my offspring. You're my child. We have this loving, trusting relationship. And so this relationship that's been built on several years of trust now comes to full circle in which the son now is about to ask this troubled question. He says, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Dad, aren't you forgetting something? There's no sacrifice. He's completely unaware that he's the sacrifice. The father hasn't told the son yet that you are the sacrifice. And he notices we're going up to this mountain to offer this act of worship to God, but we have no sacrifice. Notice now the tender response of Abraham. Abraham says in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for offering my son. You're my son. In a tender, compassionate way, he turns to his son, teaching his son about faith. God will provide a sacrifice. In essence, God already has, because at 100 years old, God gave Abraham Isaac. And yet he believes that God is going to provide a sacrifice to be offered. And notice again the same phrase that we read earlier, so they both of them went together. So they both of them together. They went together. I think now the son and the father are together. This is a transferred faith where Abraham is transferring his faith to Isaac, and Isaac now is beginning to understand that as they are making their way to the mountain, that they are to put their faith in that God is going to supply the sacrifice. And they're going together now in faith to the mountain, believing that God is going to provide a sacrifice. The father has transferred his faith over to his son. And the son now is putting his faith in God. Notice faith's discipline in verse 9. A discipline to yield an unquestioned obedience. Faith requires discipline. Because there are times as you're progressing, as you're moving forward in obedience, trusting and believing God, that your emotions are going to get the best of you and your imagination is going to run wild. And I can only imagine this father, Abraham, taking his one and only son that he loves, the promised child, Isaac, his heir, to all the promises of God, on the way to the sacrifice, the emotions and the thought process of this father. Imagine there's a struggle, a little bit. 
He's human. He's failed, but he's succeeded. And he's, he's going back and forth in his heart and in his mind. And when, verse 9, they came to the place of which God had told them, they finally got there. Notice the discipline to finish the journey. If there ever was a reason for Abraham to stop somewhere along the way on the top of, to get to the top of the mountain, there were plenty. Plenty of excuses, plenty of, of rationalization, plenty of distractions, plenty of opportunity to say, this is insane. He could have stopped. And there are many who began the faith journey, but somehow fall short. 20% of obedience and faith isn't 100%. 60% isn't 100%. 99.9% is not finishing the journey. And there are many who fail to finish the journey. It requires discipline, not just to start, but a discipline to travel as far as God has called you to travel and to finish, to arrive, to complete the course. Paul said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. Faith finishes what it starts. It doesn't waffle out or weasel out or, or get tired or just, just throws in the towel and quits. It's too hard. It's too difficult. It's too impossible. I can't. It requires discipline, and faith is a part of discipline. But not, not only that, not only did he finish the journey, but he followed the exact instructions of the Father. And, God, and Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Did exactly what God told him to do. It took some time to build this altar. It took some time to put the wood in its place. Imagine now the father, Abraham, turning to Isaac, his son, and saying, turn around, let me tie your hands, and let me place you on the wood, for you are the sacrifice. Many of us have this false notion that somehow we think that Isaac was a little bitty boy, and he couldn't have confronted or battled his father or said, no way. We think he was, he was a, somewhat of a, a victim, or he was innocent, or he was powerless, how old was Isaac at this point? Many believe he was an older teenager or possibly as old as 35 years old. So he's a man by all standards. His dad's 120 years old, maybe older. How much strength does a 120-year-old man have against a 20-year-old? He could have easily fought and resisted and run. And yet he willingly allowed his father to place him on that altar. And they followed through on the instructions. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Where was Abraham's focus at this point, do you think? Where was he looking? To whom was he attentively looking for? I think he had the knife, but I think he was looking up. I don't think he was looking down. We need the discipline to look up in the midst of difficulty and hardships and trials and tribulations and, 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 and see, focus, and concentrate on God and on God alone as our hope. 
putting our trust in him. And the discipline to follow through, the discipline to finish the course, and the discipline to keep focused on God, irrespective of what we may see or we may think or what we may feel, is is a discipline that faith must require to make it through. Because if you start looking at the circumstances and the situations and the what-ifs and the impossibilities, you'll never follow through. And lastly, next to last, look, look at face deliverance. Face deliverance. God provides. God comes through. Why wouldn't he? God is a faithful God. Notice what happens in verse 11. The sacrifice is suddenly stopped. The angel of the Lord called to him in heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Hey, God, remember way back when, before we started this journey, I, I wrote you a blank check. I gave you a, a, a blank contract and I'd already signed it and said write down what you want well here I am again it's a it's the same thing I'm making myself completely and totally available to you of course he is now he's in a jam it's a lot easier to do that when you're in a tight spot isn't it I mean most of us would not pray unless we get into a jam unless we're in that 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 place where we can't see any way out we're not really living by faith. So here we see this sacrifice is stopped, and the surrender now is exposed, and he says, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. He's not really a boy, he's a man. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham, 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 here I am. Look how far you've come. Look in the mirror now and see your faith. You've trusted me. You've grown in your understanding and your belief. Substitute is provided, verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horn. Sacrifices and offered, and Abraham went up and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Imagine Isaac now being cut loose and the ram is now the substitute for the son. Who was our substitute? Jesus. None of the analogy here is just incredible, isn't it? Even if we were to die on a cross, it would not be sufficient. We needed a substitute. We needed a sacrifice greater than ourselves to be able to take upon himself our sin against God. That's Jesus who became our substitute, who became our sacrifice. And then notice verse, verse 14. The salvation now is required and recorded and remembered by Abraham. And Abraham called the name of the place. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. His faith is rewarded, finally, in this beautiful discovery in the last couple of verses, beginning with verse 15. God is faithful, and God rewarded Abraham. Not only did he provide a substitute, and there was a sacrifice, and salvation came, but notice in verse 15, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your 
son, your only son. God is affirming the faith of Abraham. Not only is he affirming the faith of Abraham, but he's affirming the promises that he originally made, and God is swearing by his own name because there is no name greater than his name by which he is making this oath. He has said, I am promising you on my name this is what's going to happen. Notice the assurances now that God gives him in verse 17, and I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of its enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God is assuring Abraham, remember the promises that I made to you? (coughs) Not only am am I giving you those promises, but I'm going to put some chocolate syrup on them. I'm going to make them a little bit richer. I'm going to bless you a little bit more. And then God gives him the answer to these assurances in the next verse. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. He goes on to read, which we're not going to take the time, where God reveals to Abraham that his brother, family member that he had been disconnected to for quite some time, has had 12 sons. And that one of these 12 sons has had a son, and that son has a daughter, and her name is Rebecca. Sound familiar to you Old Testament people? Who did Isaac marry? Rebecca. Why was that important? Because Abraham knew at 120 plus years old that if God was not going to fulfill this promise that he made, he would do so not through a Canaanite woman, but he would do so through an Israelite. And God had already prepared a way. He had prepared a young lady called Rebecca, whom he would bring the two together, they would marry, and that would then be the beginning of the promises fulfilled, the answer to the assurances that God gave Abraham. God was faithful, and Abraham discovered God's faithfulness by putting his faith, complete, unquestioned faith in God. So let's wrap it up. What is the great commandment that God gave us as a church? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Right before his ascension, he speaks to his disciples, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the very end of the age. What's the Great Commission? To make disciples. What's the Great Commission? What's the Great Commission? One more time. What's the Great Commission? To make disciples. Where do we make disciples? In the church? We have abdicated the role of making disciples to the church. And we bring our children to the church and say, make my child into a disciple. While we go home and go, job done. That's not the role of the church. While it is the role of the church. The role of the church is to come alongside the parents. And to assist in what the parents are doing at home to make disciples. We have a whole generation of people 
that raised me, who have abdicated the role of discipleship to the church, and that's one of the main reasons why there are many who are my age who are no longer in the church. And it's about time that we fulfill our role as parents and grandparents to making disciples first in the home and then bringing them to church so that the church can facilitate what we have begun and what we're doing at home. And the greatest, most influential person in making disciples out of our children is the dad. For as the faith of the father goes, I'm convinced, so goes the faith of the son. Not fair. I get it. Get over it. Put on your big boy pants. Assume the role and the responsibility as men and become the father that God has called you to be. It's never too late. God's not demanding perfection, just obedience. And you may have failed it a hundred times, but it's never too late, even though your children are adults, to become the father of faith that your children and your grandchildren need. What I speak to you, I see in myself. And sometimes I don't like it either. I sure would like to give that responsibility to my wife and say, here, honey, you do that. I'm going to come over here and do my own thing. But I'm convinced there are more fathers who spend more time teaching their kids how to throw a stinking ball than they do about God. We spend more time in baseball than we do in the Bible. I'm sick of sports in this nation. It's not God. You can teach your kid to be a great athlete, but if you don't teach him or her to be a great person of faith, you have robbed. I spent hours teaching my kids how to throw the ball. You know what they're doing now? They're not throwing the ball. They're old. They're adults. They don't play ball anymore. I, I can't tell you how many years, literally, you put all those hours together, how many years I have spent on a baseball field watching and cheering and coaching my kids play baseball or volleyball or softball. I did all that. But I never neglected my responsibility as a parent to do the church thing and to do the faith thing and to teach them the responsibility of following God. I'm not saying do away with sports, but I'm saying put it in its proper perspective, parent, grandparent. And pass your faith along with the same zeal, if not more zeal, than you do in their ability to perform on a field. Because someday they'll get too old to play sports. And what do they have after that? I can tell you what they have because I have it. Bad knees. I can't tell you how many hours I spent doing that to get it down and to get it in. You know how many times I do this now? 
and we've got a really nice family life center over here. Zero. Because in the end, all we have is what? Our faith. It's about time the fathers step up to the plate and be men of faith and assume the responsibility and the role that God has given you as the male, as the man, as the leader, the spiritual leader of your home, of your wife, of your family, and of his church. Come on, men. If we don't step up, we're going to lose a whole generation that's going to be lost. Or they will not know what a life of faith is all about. Let's pray.